Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Recorded live. Hello. For today's podcast, I'm going to be interviewing Peter Kick. He's the author of the book Desperate Steps. I recently joined the Appalachian Mountain Club, and the first issue of their magazine that I received had a reprint of the first chapter of Peter's book. I found it so fascinating that I purchased the book. And once I read the book, I was impressed with Peter's knowledge and the depth of his research. The book analyzes... Um, I think 25 cases of things gone wrong and terribly wrong in most of the cases in the Northeast wilderness areas. Each case is a detailed description of what happened, what went wrong, and the take-home lessons. So, Peter, can you tell my listeners something about yourself? Hi, Eva. Yes, certainly. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, do this podcast. I am I have been a member of the club. I'm a life member of the Appalachian Mountain Club, uh, having been an enthusiast, uh, coming from a family of enthusiasts, let's put it that way, since childhood. Uh, And um, I think that uh, uh, the way that um, I... I began my interest in in hiking was based on my family's interest, and it led me to the AMC, and and ultimately as a as a freelancer working for the AMC. Uh, and the idea for the book actually came from the editorial staff, and uh, they had, um, you know, actually published a few narrative books uh, and found them to be of interest to their readership, uh, to their membership and to the outside world. And uh, one of them was not without peril. And uh, based on the interest in that book, uh, they asked me to consider writing this book. So uh, that uh, was a sort of a cumulative effect of my interest in AMC and the needs of the editorial department. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's kind of the inspiration for the book. And you divide the book into four sections, which you've labeled unprepared, know the route, taking risks, and unexpected. And I think that will make a nice framework for our podcast. So if we start with the section called unprepared, the first chapter is the story that was printed in the Appalachian Mountain Club magazine. And it's also, I know, available online at outdoors.com occurred in 1963 in October in, on Mount Katahdin um, in Maine on what's called the Knife Edge Trail. And I haven't yet climbed Mount Katahdin, but uh, it was originally on my plans for 2016, yep, which good. is now on mm-hmm. <laughs> plans for 2017. Um, so for people who aren't familiar with Katahdin, can you describe the trail and the terrain where the story takes place? Oh sure. The um, this is of course in the uh, the heart of Baxter State Park, and uh, <clears throat> it's very remote um, territory. Uh, it's uh, the relief is uh, quite steep um, and high angled. Uh, Mount Katahdin itself is actually um, uh, 50 to 67 feet in in height, and uh, it is sort of uh, the centerpiece of the park. 
Um, and uh, it's a granite, it's a granite intrusion kind of weathered down to the surface. So it's very exposed and uh, it is um, a difficult hike. The knife edge itself is considered to be um, one of the more, I wouldn't say inherently dangerous trails, but exposed and uh, weather beaten and uh, remote. So um, of the peaks that constitute uh, Mount Katahdin, and there are several, uh, the Knife Edge is perhaps the most notorious trail of all in um, in the state of Maine and perhaps in the Northeast. So this story starts with um, two women who are hiking a loop starting from Chimney Pond Campground, um, where there's also a ranger cabin. True. And they plan to go over Baxter Peak, follow a loop back to the start, um, and then one of them decides to take a shortcut. So what did she, why did she do this, and what happens next? Well, that's an interesting question, Eva. Uh, these uh, two women uh, were pretty experienced uh, hikers, and they were also robust as individuals. They were um, actually employed as uh, freight car loaders. They were working for... Um, um, the the uh, successor of the of the uh, um, Pony Express Company, which was uh, based in Boston, they were actually very strong, very uh, robust. As I said, very uh, experienced hikers, and you know this is early on. Don't forget in the uh, sort of in the uh, re- recreational uh, history of the area, 1963. So. You know, equipment and and clothing, outerwear, um, um, GPS, a lot of that stuff either didn't exist or wasn't very refined. Um, Nonetheless, they elected to cross uh, the Knife Edge uh, Trail before the park. I guess the park was actually um, closed uh, at that point for the winter. And um, they got to a point on the Knife Edge where many people will point out that they can see Chimney Pond. And... uh, it looks close, and it is close. Uh, it's uh, by air, only about maybe a mile and a half, and um, by trail, several more miles. So when uh, Margaret Ivusik uh, noticed this sort of um, distance variation, she said, well, I'm going directly down the headwall right to the pond. And... Uh, not knowing the relief, a very steep relief um, that stood between her and, and the pond. She she headed down, and Helen Maurer said, don't do it. You know, you're, you're really making a big mistake. Uh, we don't know the terrain. Uh, it looks steep. Um, I'm not coming. And so they, they had some sort of a quarrel, uh, the nature of which is, is really obscure. But in any event, they decided to split up and um, against Helen. Mauer's wishes and Helen continued down to Chimney Pond on the trail and when she got to the cabin of course her friend uh, was stuck somewhere midway not even midway down the side of the headwall and they could communicate verbally um, but uh, they couldn't see one another and uh, Margaret was stuck and could not proceed any further without help and uh, so she was she was taking a shortcut that she wasn't really prepared to take. And I understand the next thing that happened is that um, the, the Margaret's friend 
contacted the ranger and he took some actions that turned out he wasn't fully prepared for. So what happened next? Right, right. So, you know, this Eva happens uh, to many hikers on the knife edge. They underestimate um, the nature of the terrain. And, you know, this is a recurring theme in outdoor um, um, mm-hmm. troubleshooting. Um, if 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 there had been a body of literature available to her at this time uh, at the time that she took the hike perhaps she would not have chosen to go off trail but uh Helen did the right thing in contacting the ranger immediately and uh he he was a Ralphie was a tough man he was only 37 he had i guess done a lot of trail maintenance that day so uh he was tired he he'd hiked Oh, I don't know, roughly 12 miles and covered several thousand feet of elevation and building a new trail. And then he came back to his camp at the, at the ranger cabin, the chimney. And, uh, you know, he was uh, at that point, understandably, pretty exhausted. Um, so when Helen ran into him and asked him to uh, help to rescue her friend, um, he was uh, he was in a he was in a pretty deep state of near exhaustion at that point from having accomplished a heavy day's work. And now he was being asked to ascend the knife edge again uh, to perform a difficult rescue. So I think both psychologically and physically, he was, uh, he could easily be described as um, unprepared to uh, perform a rescue on a difficult slope. Um, even though at that point the weather hadn't turned against him. I guess you know, the weather got bad, and he was um, – how far did he make it in his rescue attempts? The weather got bad. Uh, yeah, he, he made it apparently to um, Mrs. Ivusik's location um, ultimately. Uh, he – uh, in retrospect, now this is all forensic and a lot of it is theoretical, um, he attached a rope to her body and attempted to lift her up to the elevation of the knife head and had failed to do so. Um, perhaps the rope breaking caused Margaret um, an injury that uh, resulted in her um, exsanguination of her blood from her body and she, the, the, the coroner's report was that she died from blood loss. Uh, Ralph, on the other hand, proceeded, was able to go back to the knife edge, ostensibly to walk out and get more help, rather than to descend straight down the slope, which had become snow covered by this point. And he died in C2 on the top of the knife edge in a sitting position, having sat down and I think relinquished every possibility of hope, tragically. Yeah. Um, because, as you mentioned, one factor was the arrival of, of bad weather. And what was the weather forecasting and hurricane forecasting like back in 1963? Oh, Eva, it was poor if, if non-existent. I I think that uh, they had no idea uh, that the, there was a hurricane um, in the Atlantic, and 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 the weather was relatively mild. Uh, and I guess this this um, forecasting uh, at, at that time was sort of a um, it was not the sort of scientific sort of dynamical tracking that that 
models that are used today. That didn't come about until the 70s. Uh, but it was, it was able, they were able to accurately estimate a hurricane's position by then, you know, by, the, by the 40s, and that was done primarily by aircraft. But they were not able to tell uh, where or with what probability a hurricane would hit the mainland and what the conditions surrounding that would be like. Uh, and of course, even though Jimmy Hurricane Jimmy did not directly strike Katahdin, the um, pressure areas uh, feeding the hurricane uh, caused uh, just this horrendous weather um, at upper elevations. Yeah, but it, you know, from my own experiences, and I'm sure from your book and your experiences, does um, the does mere anticipation of bad weather stop? everybody from going out and taking that's, risks? That's, the, that's a very interesting question, uh, and, and it, it's sort of uh, a human behavior issue. I think that uh, uh, through my examination of a lot of these events and my own um, experience in the backcountry, that, yes, weather, bad weather will stop you. It, it, most people will think, oh, I, you know, how can I enjoy this trip if the weather is bad? Let's not do it. I think that's the, the most knee-jerk reaction. But um, what 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 seems to be the issue is that people do not consult the weather forecast mm-hmm. that's available to them. And uh, even if they do, um, as we know, weather in upper elevations um, is extremely changeable, and uh, not like uh, it's not like the more stable forecasting that can be accomplished in the flatlands. Um, and of course, uh, you know, they don't check the last minute weather um, perhaps, and they find themselves in a situation where sudden weather comes up. And uh, mm-hmm. they didn't, I don't believe, intend to be exposed to that weather. Uh, but there are also questions, Eva, about the type of backcountry travel uh, people do. I mean, we, we, we're not only dealing with recreational travelers in the backcountry, we're dealing with researchers and government workers and forest rangers and lost people who are suddenly exposed to bad weather. And they, or, or perhaps in the case of a researcher, they, they, they expect bad weather or they, they're immune to it through their constant exposure to the backcountry. So there are any number of types of backcountry users that may, by nature, uh, sort of ignore bad weather and, or be able to live with it or not necessarily mind being exposed to wind and rain and they're, and they're prepared for it. So uh, there's a, a wide profile of users to consider in that question. And what about communications? What kind of communications? Um, what was that like in 1963? Oh, great question. You know, um, if uh, I think if, if if communications had been better than they were, the rescue would have been faster. But that communication did not necessarily contribute to Margaret Ogusik's death. Uh, they had handheld walkie-talkies at that point, um, the efficacy of which was pretty much determined by uh, proximity. Um, you, you couldn't talk through mountains or thick woods or when there was heavy overcast. Um, 
they were almost uh, line of sight quality radios at that point. And there was a weak telephone system that uh, Ranger Rodney Sargent pointed out in, in interviews was constantly being knocked down by tree falls and moose. So <laughs> the communication system was susceptible to um, all these uh, variables, and they were constantly repairing the system. So communications were poor, and I think that did um, slow down the um, whole process of, of getting somebody up on the mountain itself. Right, because I understand they weren't re- able to recover um, either Margaret or Ralph's bodies until almost six months later because of the winter set in and the weather True. conditions were bad. And yes, yes. Um, you know, the, really the revolution in mountaineering uh, had a lot to do with um, – uh, I think the lack of, rather, the lack of, of specialized equipment for mountaineering um, had a lot to do with uh, prolonging the rescue effort. Um, not that modern mountaineering equipment would have made the difference, but the approach to the recovery was made at a time when um, climbers were just starting to find out about things like front-pointing crampons and nylon rope. And they had none of these things. So a climber in those days could not go directly up an ice face. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had to, um, uh, not a soloist, they had to chop steps and be roped and simul climbing. uh, So it was a much slower process to rescue somebody with the technology that existed in those days. Uh, And, of course, um, the recovery uh, failed. Um, And... uh, they had to wait until clear weather and no snow. The ice pack stayed on the mountain for, for a long time. And, you know, they were essentially frozen in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read that they needed to use, like, uh, chemical salts to melt the ice to try and remove right. the bodies. Um, well, they had to be careful not to damage the body of Margaret Ivusik. And uh, poor Buzz Caverly had to carry 35 pounds of rock salt up the mountain. Um, and they distributed around. It took her actually three days to exhume Margaret's body, whereas right. Ralph was, uh, he was not encased in ice. He he was just sort of um, frozen solid and uh, in sitting in a sitting position. Uh, so that's what can happen to you if you're not careful. Yeah, and, <laughs> but um, what kind of lessons or improvements um, resulted from this episode? Oh, great deal. Actually, um, you know, the fact that Mr. Putnam arrived, uh, uh, he was uh, he was um, perhaps, oh, I guess, one of the most uh, advanced mountaineers in the country. Um, he was instrumental in suggesting changes that in terms of far, in terms of uh, state park management, park ma- recreational management that were in use in the Selkirks when he was pioneering routes there as one of the leading mountaineers in the country, and uh, I think what he um, what he actually accomplished was suggesting several changes that uh, anticipated the development of modern search and rescue. Um, he recommended that the park put caches of equipment 
uh, like tarpaulins and food and climbing gear and other equipment um, that rescuers could have a quick access to you know, around the park in strategic areas. And this, this has been a practice put in place by Baxter as well as uh, in um, other areas uh, of the country and most particularly in uh, Mount Washington uh, in the uh, in the Tuckerman Huntington Ravine areas, there are caches, uh, and the caches are actually quite uh, sophisticated, uh, and uh, they they have everything a rescuer will need for a quick response. Uh, and a lot of these things, I guess, um, um, you know, they have uh, clothing and they have um, uh, avalanche rescue equipment and maps and food and things like that. So. Those improvements were enacted at the park, and uh, there were some other things. Uh, Putnam also stressed the importance of identifying a search coordinator, which we call today an incident commander, and um, keeping a detailed log of all events, like uh, which is now called an incident command timeline, to help reduce redundancy and confusion. And and, and that has been the, been a real issue in searches. People are often trampling um, trails and evidence and repeating search grid uh, areas and uh, they're driven sometimes by 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 the need to recover somebody they know is eminently perishable in in, uh, in terms of uh, extreme emergencies um, it's easy to overrun uh, an area erase footprints and uh, clues and so forth so he was um, instrumental in um, creating new safeguards for the park and they also initiated a system whereby the park had a main gate entrance and uh, a rear gate entrance so Baxter is unique in that respect they have the ability to scrutinize everybody that comes and goes uh, that's not possible obviously in a place like the Adirondack Park or um, mm -hmm. out Washington uh, you know, state forest um, and, and in other areas. So Baxter has a, a sort of a, an individuality all its own in terms of uh, safeguarding the public from danger. Mm -hmm. And I know that each section of your book ends with some safety notes. So are there any particular elements from the unprepared safety notes you'd like to stress to my listeners? Well, yes. Uh, you know, I, I can go out long and loud on this stuff um, and it's really the club uh, philosophy to um, provide educational tools for people uh, you know they, they, they it is an educational or organization uh, first and foremost um, in, a, in a preservation organization uh, but you know um, what I have experienced and, and this is the interesting thing about this is the, the statistical realities behind how people behave um, toward um, this sort of ad hoc use of the woods. Uh, for example, jogging is the most popular sport in America. And it, the reason for that is because you don't need any equipment necessarily, aside from a T-shirt, a pair of sneakers, and your running pants that's it three articles of clothing and you're out the door and doing your sport hiking is a little bit more involved but not much you can do the same thing um 
and go to 5,000 feet in elevation with only a pair of sneakers, a pair of shorts, and a T-shirt. You really don't even need the T-shirt if you're a guy. (laughs) (laughs) We've got these these scantily clad people um, reaching deep into the woods um, in an impromptu way to stop your car, run up Cascade Mountain before dinner, that kind of thing. Uh, and what they have neglected to do is anticipate the unexpected. And, and this can be dealt with, in my recommendation, for people who do this, and I am one of them. You know, I, I'll often take an impromptu hike with no equipment whatsoever. But, you know, I'll, 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 I'll take precautions in terms of not going too far and, and you know, not walking until nighttime. So the thing I would say, uh, insofar as unprepared uh, safety notes, um, the obvious things like leave a leave an itinerary with somebody, definitely, uh, because you could reach a point in the hike where you're something happens you're, and you're incapacitated and you wish you had left um, mm-hmm. a detailed itinerary, and to uh, stay on the trail, and to um, have a be, be willing to turn around and not be go- so goal-oriented that you're pu- pushing it too far. And to have your 10 essentials, just put your little fanny pack of 10 essentials in the trunk. And whenever you want to do that, and this is the most important thing, is to have your 10 essentials in the trunk of the car. Um, they weigh nothing. They can be in the fanny pack. They cost very little. Um, things like lighters, extra food, a, a, an emergency um, poncho, a compass, your map, uh, they, they weigh nothing, they cost very little, you can afford redundancy, you can afford to have several little fanny packs like that, and take that with you. Your headlamp is in there, you know, your, your, um, m- maybe a, uh, a liter or half of water, and, and that, in many cases, will enable you to self-rescue. It's just having at least the minimum... And the minimum, the next, yes. The next section of your book is called Know the Root, and one of the stories involves a man who ran into trouble visiting Catterskill Falls in the Catskill Mountains of New York, an area that is nowhere as near as remote as Mount Katahdin. So can you describe the falls and the hike to reach them? Oh, yes. Uh, this is one of the sad things about forest preserve management, Eva. Oftentimes... Um, uh, topographical uh, details will become tourist uh, destinations, and you know that's that's what we all love about uh, nature is that that grandiose, savage uh, uh, scenery that we can reach easily. And so, as a result, um, you've got a lot of people, lots of people. So this becomes a uh, another statistical realm where. The more people you have, the more um, the more um, accidents you'll have, and that's just a statistical reality. Uh, Cotterskill Falls has been an historic tourist destination since uh, eighteen in the eighteen hundreds, when uh, Frederick Church and Thomas Cole, the founders of the Hudson River School, um, popularized them in art. So you know, people have been visiting the falls for uh, a couple of centuries, and um, so they are actually the highest falls in, in New York State. Um, 
but uh, the distinction between that and Niagara Falls, which which is um, lower, mm-hmm. is that the uh, this falls is in two tiers. So it comes down one plume into an amphitheater and then goes down another plume uh, into a river, and it's uh, 260 feet in total. So, you know, that sort of savage uh, scenery with, you know, all this plunging water in a plunge pool for people to swim in uh, has created such a draw that it has overwhelmed <clears throat> Pardon me. Both the trail and the government body that supervises it, the uh, Department of Environmental Conservation. So I've got a hundred thousand people. Pictures a hundred thousand people a year visiting this fall, and try to imagine the variation in experience and and uh, preparedness uh, for what is a very short trail, in, in fact, it's only a quarter mile or maybe 0.4 miles actually, uh, to the base of the falls from a busy road where there is a large parking area. So uh, the most, I think the most, the most common, um, the most common cause of injury is, is lack of proper footwear. And so it's summertime, it's 90 degrees out and you have people walking up to the falls on the trail or the in the adjacent stream wearing flip-flops and this has caused um, flip-flops and inadequate footwear are cited as the reasons for several fatalities there mm-hmm. yeah so what uh, happened to the man who who uh, was just out for a short pleasant day hike in 2004 interestingly enough gary rankin a delightful fellow um a chaplain, uh, can't remember the day that he fell. He suffered a traumatic brain injury and uh, had several several broken bones and nearly died um, and uh, uh, was miraculously um, uh, rescued in time to prevent his death um, by some fast-acting members of the public who were able to get a call out and get a helicopter medevac him out. Um, Gary is uh, now working um, as uh, he's still in in the profession um, and he's working with several uh, organizations um, uh, dealing with um, disabled people. Uh, But Gary and his wife were just out for a a day hike. This was impromptu again. They were uh, driving past the trailhead, and they said, "Hey, look, this is the trail to Corisco Falls. Let's let's take a walk." And so they did. And they were not they were not cruelly unprepared for this. He had the proper footwear on. He had some sort of a heavy hiking sneaker. They, they had planned to hike somewhere, but they happened upon the falls. And so they went up, and everything was good. And what happened was Gary actually took a herd trail, which had become quite pronounced um, by overuse and high impact. He went up the side of the fall to the amphitheater, and uh, this trail, this particular herd trail, has been the location of some fatalities in the past. And uh, he slipped and went approximately 70, oh, I don't know, 70 to 90 feet down a high incline slope over rock. 
uh, and, and and arrived lifeless um, and limp at the bottom. Uh, now, you know, the, the issues that have come up um, that are related to Cotterskill Falls and tourist um, attractions like it uh, have been scrutinized over the years, and the state has finally had to respond. Um, they, uh, you know, they the state is, is not omniscient in terms of accidents. They can't prevent every accident. People have to sort of use some common sense. And, and But in this case, there had been so many there had been so many accidents at the falls that it uh, it took some um, it took some complaints from lawmakers and local officials to actually get the state to change uh, conditions there and improve the trails and and the signage and put up fences and it's a, it's essentially out of hand uh, um, and now improvements have been made and in spite of that there was a, one death recently at the falls so you know it's ongoing the public will endanger itself at some point. Yeah, you know, when I wrote um, up my questionnaire that I, I sent you, I mentioned, um, and it was actually about a year ago that I first started working on this uh, questionnaire for the podcast, I mentioned a waterfall near my home called Tinker Falls that oh, right. only a short drive from Syracuse, it's a quarter mile ha- hike to the base of the falls, it's actually wheelchair accessible, so there's lots of people, um, and actually one of my friends had her son when he was a teenager, you know, climbed up the 50 feet main falls and fell and broke his wrist, several ribs and collapsed his lung. But, you know, since I wrote that, the falls have become kind of infamous because um, there was some um, evil, that's the only word for it, evil man who this within this past year took his two-year-old daughter there and um, beat her to death and, and burned her and, you know, trying to oh. dispose of the body. So I guess I'm never going to be able to visit Tinker Falls with again without oh, thinking terrible. of that, which was, I mean, I think it's a story that certainly made the statewide news in New York and probably even the national news. Um, but um, Incredible. Yeah. Um, and then the, the um, third section of your book is called taking risks and there's a story one of the stories from there is about an avalanche that occurred on Wright Peak in the Adirondacks and even though I've lived in New York State most of my life I admit I never really thought about avalanches in the state so you know I didn't even realize that was a a risk here and also your description about the avalanche and conditions leading up to them made me realize how much um, one should really learn if you want to understand avalanches so can you understand what happened to, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce his name correctly, Toma Vrakaric in February of 2000? Very good, Toma Vrakaric. That's a tough name. Yeah. Yes, this was uh, the um, first avalanche-related fatality uh, in the Adirondacks, perhaps New York State by definition, by extension. Uh, and um, I, it's a very complex area. To talk casually about, and it's also, um, I think, uh, one of the most misunderstood of all natural phenomena. Um, the um, this sort of situations that have developed in the Adirondacks over the years, 
where we have more slide skiers, the kind of enthusiasts that like backcountry skiing and uh, go to great pains to reach these slides. And the, the increasing quality of equipment that they're using um, and the uh, uh, contrasted against the weather changes uh, we've been having over the last 20 years uh, have produced uh, a new dynamic in, in um, uh, backcountry behavior, and that is uh, uh, the necessity of, of being able to, to examine a slope and um, predict uh, or, or determine rather its um, uh, level of stability. Uh, and, and nobody had been paying any attention to, to avalanche um, safety in the backcountry of the Adirondacks uh, on avalanche terrain um, ever until this particular event. Um, and um, there are some very experienced people um, that were with uh, Toma for carriage that day. Toma himself, a very experienced backcountry skier, um, and uh, the leader of the group, um, Ron Konowitz, is probably the most single experienced backcountry skier in uh, the state of New York and especially uh, in the Adirondack um, 46 uh, High Peaks area. And he'd been doing this for 20 years as uh, a, uh, an enthusiast and he's been a volunteer rescuer. And, uh, he, he co-founded the Powder Skiers Association. He was, Toma was with a very experienced group um, and uh, of several people. And what happened was the Adirondacks had received more snow in a six-week period than it had in the previous several years. And prior to that, there was a slide on Wright Peak that opened up a new um, uh, ski area for the uh, enthusiasts that slide skiing. So there was a, a great deal of snow on a new surface um, in a you know, bare rock surface, which are, of course, more prone to slide, uh, generally speaking, than uh, heavy snowpack over, say, a spruce forest or something. Although um, avalanches do slide in forest areas uh, often enough. And But anyway, um, these fellows were skiing along with two uh, women who were very experienced. Um, one was a former assistant forest ranger. One was Ron Conowitz's wife, Lauren, very experienced skier. And they all um, uh, skied the slope on right. And uh, when, Toma, when Toma began his run, uh, the, the slope fractured. Uh, the rest of the group was looking up at him coming down. The slope fractured and buried everybody um, um, to some extent um, and uh, buried Lauren Conowitz and Toma for carriage completely. Uh, so... Of course, um, the group had to exhume itself. Uh, Ron and another skier were able to get out of the snow. And, you know, it went from there. Uh, they dug Lauren out. She was terribly injured. Um, Tomo had essentially disappeared under the snow, and they found themselves in these horrendous conditions. Yeah, um, because it sounds like, you know, from your reading, it made me appreciate how um, complex avalanche science is. And, and some, some of the people listening to this podcast would be familiar with that because they 
handle avalanche dogs that are trained to find people buried in avalanches. Um, I don't know of any avalanche dogs in New York State. But for people who aren't familiar with avalanche science, what are some of the factors that affect um, the likelihood that an avalanche will occur? Well, you know, Eva, uh, New York State has done a pretty good job of um, publicizing what they know about avalanches. And, and they, they do a basic awareness um, page on the DEC, New York State DEC page. Uh, and the the things to, to simplify the situation, um, you've you've got to know where avalanches generally occur, and that's kind of common sense. But not, you know, it, it goes of course much much deeper than that. But a steep slope is one. Um, considerable snow cover is another. Uh, a weak layer in the snow cover is key. Um, when you get accumulations of different temperatures and humidities, uh, saturation levels of snow, you get a layer effect. And uh, some of these layers, I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh, some of these layers are prone to um, weakness, and eventually they slide uh, if there's a trigger. Now, 90% of all avalanches are human-triggered, um, and, uh, you know, that's key. If you're on a slope that has these, um, if you're on a slope that has these characteristics, uh, you, you should be aware that the human trigger effect is, is present. Otherwise, uh, you know, uh, we've got to know the things as such as, uh, where they're most likely to occur, um, how you can keep yourself from getting caught in an avalanche, how you can recognize unstable snow, what rescue gear you should carry, uh, what to do if you're caught in an avalanche, and, and develop your safety, your, your, travel, your travel safety habits around that. Uh, so aside from snow science, which most people don't know much about, you can protect yourself um, in other ways. But the real, uh, I think, answer uh, is to take a um, an avalanche safety awareness uh, course in any one of the uh, avalanche uh, um, area uh, avalanche forecasting areas that exist in the country and there are precious few there's one at mount washington that's the oldest one in the country and there's one in the chipchock uh, um, uh, gas bay peninsula of quebec um, but the other ones are primarily out west so uh there's one in Smuggler's Notch being offered um, uh, on a regular basis, and there are three levels of awareness course um, that you kind of got to familiarize yourself if you're going to be actively skiing avalanche terrain. Yeah, and I know that this section of the book ends with, uh, you know, 21 bullet points that anybody who reads your book can review. And the fourth section of your book is called unexpected and that section really struck home because I was you know reading through one of the stories I said wait this sounds a little these names sound familiar and it was a story about a child who became lost in the Adirondacks and who was never found and actually it turns out that I knew this um, child's parents they're both deceased now 
and you know they never mentioned their loss, so I, I learned about it um, from your book. And there was also a, kind of a scary story about a rafting trip gone wrong. And in this case, the subject was at the you know mercy of an unscrupulous guide. And this was not very long ago in 2012. A woman named Tamara Blake. So she decided to go whitewater rafting with a commercial rafting company. And as you described the situation of commercial rafting, the companies they all look similar no matter where in the country you are. It's using the analogy that's like getting a McDonald's cheeseburger and it should be the same in every state. But can you summarize what happened to Tamara and what went wrong? Oh sure. Poor Tamara Blake. You know, um yeah. That that was um, um, a foreseeable tragedy, and I think of all the instances in this book, probably the most preventable. And Tamara had on her bucket list, you know, she she a rafting trip was on her bucket list. She didn't know where. She looked at rivers in the North Carolina uh, area and uh, some other ones, but finally her attention came to the Hudson River Gorge. It was a good choice. That's a fantastic trip. I've taken it myself. And she. Um, was set about locating a guide uh, to to uh, take her down the river. Uh, her her partner um, did not want to participate, uh, but in order to sort of uh, look over, watch over her, keep her company, uh, and so on, he uh, um, Richard Clark reluctantly agreed to join the trip. Um, so the, together they researched some guiding companies and decided upon using the Hudson River Acting Company in uh, uh, North Creek. And and so they went uh, together, and um, I think they uh, they decided um, that the Hudson River Acting Company, uh, which is op- operated by an extremely experienced outdoorsman, uh, Pat Cunningham, was going to be their choice. So they paid their 90 bucks. They got, uh, they, they actually went to the, uh, to the uh, trailhead or what we call the put in, in, in rafting terms with uh, their guide. And uh, as it, as it happens, uh, the guide was intoxicated, unbeknownst to them, uh, was intoxicated and did not have a driver's license, et cetera, et cetera. He was a rookie guide. Um, and um, in, Relatively recent times, the Hudson River Rafting Company has been uh, the object of scrutiny by um, um, any number of government people for what they considered transgressions in uh, professional practice. And, um, so uh, the, the the question here, I think, the important question is that uh, not only can members of the public be unprepared for what they were about to do uh, in and of themselves without a guide. Uh, but um, guides themselves are not infallible, uh, and they are also um, human. <laughs> so, you know, I think the lesson to be learned is that we need to, if we're using guides, we need to vet them carefully, look at their histories, look at the public uh, input on their performance, look at their qualifications, look for um, their experience level and so on. And that's very easy to do today with uh, the internet. And it's also easy to do by interviewing and um, uh, calling companies and finding out as much as you can, especially, especially for a trip that is involves uh, 
class three, four, five white water and uh, the potential for serious uh, consequences. And I don't think that Tamara did that. Um, well, obviously, uh, I, I, it, it's so hard to say uh, what's going through people's heads. That she she wanted something simple and easy. The rafting company was near the bed and breakfast where she stayed the night before. And uh, so, it, you know, and, and, and externally, it looked just like another raft, any other rafting company of the 11 rafting companies operating on the Hudson River. So uh, it's, it's difficult to, to, to um, anticipate that you're signing up with a company that has a history or um, has a um, uh, sort of a, um, a pall cast over them from previous transgressions that were, you know, for example, for example, uh, not only did the guide that they were signed arrive um, intoxicated or became intoxicated uh, between the, his arrival at the shop and his arrival at the at the put-in, but um, his driver's license had been suspended years before that, and um, you know also uh, he, uh, you know there were people driving buses for the company that didn't have commercial driver's licenses. And uh, if, if it just seems strange that if there was anybody home at, at, at the shop there, Patrick Cunningham runs the shop, uh, it would seem to me that and to other members of the public who, 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 and, and officials who intervened uh, in the aftermath of the Blake tragedy, that you would know um, who's intoxicated uh, who's got a driver's license? I mean, these are things that are ordinarily are, are scrutinized by companies that are doing uh, professional guiding. So I think there were some uh, some gaps in the vetting of the guides um, that contributed to this tragedy too, or they never would have uh, allowed uh, this gentleman to um, to accompany a paid. Uh, party down the Hudson River in class three to four water. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, after I read your book, I Googled Hudson River Rafting Company, and you look at their website, and it looks, you know, a typical glossy brochure rafting company. Um, but, you know, if you look closely at the bottom of the page, then Google suggests related searches, and the first thing they suggest is Hudson River Rafting Company death. But if you leave out that word death, it incident doesn't show up until the second page of the Google search where, you know, somebody might never go on to the second page because they think, okay, you know, I didn't think of adding the word death when I'm searching the name of a rafting company. True. Um, but I think what kind of scares me is, you know, my kids, you know, I, I think each of them probably went on a rafting trip when they were in high school, you know, as part of a school group. And, you know, it, it never even really occurred to me that, to, to ask, you know, tell me something more about this group and let me vet their credentials because I kind of assumed that, you know, the teacher or youth group leader would have researched the organization, but that's probably, you know, they probably didn't. Um, you know, nothing bad happened, but it's kind of scary because I don't really know who uh, was running those, you know, in retrospect. Um, and, you know, you end that section of the book with a list of safety notes for reducing unexpected hazards. For example, if you're, you know, um, 
so one of what are some of the tips? You know, one for me would be like you're on a say you're on a multi-day backpacking trip and a thunderstorm comes up and you can't you know quickly hike out of, to civilization and get into a building. So what do you do? Right, right. And it pays to uh, do some research on these things before you go, so that you have some idea of how to behave uh, when 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 the bad stuff comes your way. Um, and I think uh, one of the things, I mean, I'm always discovering, Eva, things that I never knew about, um, say, for example, uh, lightning, which is an interesting phenomenon. Um, and people's reactions to lightning, um, we don't know much about it as individuals. And, and the, the wonderful thing about lightning, about education, is that uh, with lightning awareness, um, we have many, many, many more um, survivors of lightning strikes. Uh, 50 years ago, uh, when there was no set of collective public training on uh, lightning um, and its uh, habits, uh, about several hundred people a year died in lightning strikes across the U.S. And now, because of education, only about 50 people a year die in lightning strikes. And in, in the event of the group that I discussed that was on Mount Katahdin, um, you know, they, they, had not, they had no idea what to do. Uh, they, they continued walking um, after uh, the first strike. When in, in, in reality, they should have tried to get, they were, they were spread out, and that made it a little, different, a little difficult to do this, but they, they should have gotten off the ridge a little bit. It's hard to do on the knife edge. Uh, but but it is possible to cower down. You 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 should put your 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 body um, uh, over your feet and try to occupy as little space as possible. You should spread the group out as far as you can, and um, that will reduce your chances um, of being struck, as opposed to say walking upright in a highly exposed area. And that would seem to be sort of common knowledge and intuition, but it's not. Uh, I think that um, I think that yeah, it's just human nature uh, not to find out as much as you can. And one of one of the things that is said in particular about um, avalanche science is that, digressing for a minute, is that most most people know a great deal more about their sport than they do about avalanche science and um that can be extrapolated to any uh situation we know more about hiking than we do about meteor meteorology for example we know more about paddling than we do about river hydraulics and so on so raising our level of uh, understanding and awareness of uh, of what's out there is certainly going to help our survival uh potential and and i think that in in terms of unexpected, um, you, you've got to have a plan for retreat. And uh, you've got to uh, always understand that traveling through exposed terrain, even when you're prepared, can be risky. Exposed terrain is just naturally risky. And you've got to, in terms of lightning especially, um, people, people tend to congregate in areas um, when there's lightning and, and, and in open 
spaces, it is more advisable to spread out uh, so that, I mean, if the God forbid is a, um, a strike on somebody, at least it, the strike won't travel to uh, the next nearest person. Um, so it's kind of a triage approach, but uh, that's the that's the nature of the beast. And one of the things that people don't understand um, about about lightning is that if if you can hear thunder, you can be hit by a lightning strike. And um, this is, that's not something that the ordinary person thinks. If you can hear thunder, well, there's thunder. Uh, so the the atmospheric uh, National Atmospheric Oceanographic and Atmospheric Association has a little saying that said, "When thunder roars, get indoors, because if you hear thunder, you can be hit by lightning." Um, but nobody seems to really behave with that understanding. So uh, lightning is very mercurial and capricious. Nobody really. You know, it's not well understood how it travels across the ground. Uh, it's still, you know, a very um, mysterious natural force. Um, but in terms of uh, safety, you know, it, it, it's it's um, in, in the Tamara Blake is she's somewhat different from all the other um, people in this book because uh, her she put her she put her faith in somebody else's hands and it just happened to be the wrong person mm-hmm. yeah. where, you know, I mean, it's, it's things, things happen. Addiction is a, a reality. Uh, it does pervade the outdoor industry. Um, you know, I, it's, it's difficult to, to condemn just this one guy because he was, a his uh, alcohol level was that, uh, uh, well, shall we say, uh, well, it's 0.30, which is, um, which is, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't be walking around if that was my alcohol level. No, and and that's at that alcohol level, you know, uh, it is so high that um, you can, you know, it's the stupor level, uh, mm-hmm. and um, you, you begin to lose consciousness at point three zero. Um, but you know, it wasn't just a, 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 a comedy of, of terror that happened. He should have you know, been vetted, and, and that should have been detected and prevented um, way before it got to that point. Addiction is one thing, but uh, somebody wasn't home um, at the shop, and, and, and somebody wasn't scrutinizing what was happening with their staff, and that was uh, that was the prime mover in the tragedy. I think that um, the Hudson River Rafting Company people had become, well, the owner, who was credited with founding rafting on the Hudson uh, and it was very experienced, had become very complacent. And I think the, all of the evidence points to that. So the guide never should have been able to get to that point. Um, so, you know, there's not much you can do about that once you get into a situation with somebody that's incompetent or incapacitated. But uh, that's the only such story in the book where faith was wholly given to somebody who was entirely unable to exercise responsible behavior. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 I think in this book, um, you know, we've endeavored to, to 
to put these um, these safety notes in, uh, as a quick reference for people to just just take a minute and, and consider what you're about to do and think about it a little more critically um, before taking off. Everything, everything, no matter what it is, no matter what endeavor, short hike, long backpacking trip, canoe trips, um, things like that, just just preparation is key. Yep, and I do see that, you know, one of the resources you list is something called hikesafe.com, which is a place where my listeners could read more. Now, how long did it take you to research and write Desperate Steps? Well, this, this was a big project, and um, I, I, that's, a, that's a good question because I worked on it intermittently. Um, a project of this nature is pretty dense, and, and you need to step back from it once in a while. But I, I guess the whole thing took me, Oh, about a year and a half. Um, I had a fairly liberal publication schedule, um, and one of the one of the things that now that's that's a long time. That would be a long time for a full time writer to produce a book of this length. But I was working at the time, so uh, a lot of my efforts were relegated to early mornings and weekends. Uh, and so a year and a half is probably a fair estimate. <laughs> It still represents a lot of, you know, I can tell a lot of effort and thought went into tracking down, the, you know, what went on with all these stories. Um, what are some other books that you've written? Oh, not so difficult books um, to write. Uh, the Catskill Mountain Guide, which is part of the AMC series, um, the most popular of which is the White Mountain Guide. Uh, the club determined that mountain guides were um, – uh, desirable to uh, club members, and then um, of course they expanded that to include um, the general public uh, as the AMC became a larger group. I also published a hike book called um, AMC's Best Day Hikes in the Catskills and Hudson Valley. I did another book for AMC a few years ago uh, called Discover the Adirondacks, which is a multi-sport guide. Um, biking, canoeing, and hiking experiences in the Adirondack Park. Um, and um, I've written several other books for W. Norton under the Backcountry Countryman in print uh, about uh, mountain biking and hiking also. Um, and uh, those are becoming dated books. That's one of the realities of uh, writing yeah. uh, nonfiction. But um, so now I'm 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 focusing more on narrative books, and I'm anticipating writing another Desperate Steps book in the immediate future. All right, I'll see if I'm brave enough to read it. You know, after I read this one, I almost didn't want to get out of bed for a week. <laughs> so. I know, Eva. The stories are terrible, and it was hard to write. Um, some yeah. of these were heartbreaking interviews that I conducted with people, yeah. and some of the also the. The difficulty in 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 in, in this type of uh, researching these types of in, incidents that are you know occasionally deep, deeply tragic and certainly horrible um, is that sometimes people just don't want to discuss it and um, understandably so a writer an investigative journalist or whatever kind of uh, how however you want to define this genre the style of writing is faced with um, developing developing a story, say based on the eyewitness or 
participant report of a forest ranger or a conservation officer or an onlooker or somebody else. So most of my stories were oh, from uh, relatives of decedents, mothers, um, fathers, sons and daughters had lost people, uh, were generally 80% of the time willing to, and eager, in fact, to talk about it. And also my source material had to derive from freedom of information requests from government agencies and so forth. And they take a great deal of time to uh, develop, to actually procure. I think the worst one was the U.S. Forest Service took, oh, I, um, probably 12 weeks to get me uh, an incident report um, from an event that happened in uh, the White Mountains in um, about 10 years ago. So, you know, these different agencies function on different schedules. And, and it, so you've got a writer has his, his hands full, his or her hands full when it comes to getting uh, down to um, that kernel of truth that actually uh, defines the event. Um, you've got to interview, make, make check, you know, fact check, and talk to everybody you possibly can to try to get a balanced view and not a judgmental uh, one. Um, it's easy, very easy to take a Monday morning quarterback approach to a lot of these events and say, well, he or she shouldn't have done this or that or this or that. And we yeah. really have no idea what was going on in their heads at the time. Right. That is you know, the scary thing as you read through these is you think, you know, I could be really prepared and, you know, there's, there's still a risk out there. That's, um, I guess, why they call it wilderness. That's an adventure. That's right. Yeah. And essentially, <laughs> Eva, these are adventure stories. That's the, for, the, for the impartial reader, these are adventure stories. But the thing is, when, when we hear of an incident, John Doe, you know, froze to death or died of exposure on Lafayette Peak. And, you know, we make a couple of judgments. Gee, is it funny, you know, it was too bad that he chose to go hiking in February and, you know, 20 below zero or something like that. And we don't think much more about it. But when we get to know these people on a human level and we, we you know, we, we can become empathic about their situation, you say, oh, my God, uh, it, it – it creates more of an impact because that could have, we look at it as a, not only a fellow human being that suffered miserably, but we look at ourselves and saying, you know what, that can happen to me too. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, I can't remember the title of it, but there's sort of a similar book in concept that I bought year, you know, several years ago, I took my, the only trip I've ever taken to the Grand Canyon and they had a, book for sale in their bookstore about all the deaths that have occurred in the Grand Canyon. And you know, one of the things they mentioned were people falling off the cliff because they were men who thought it would be fun to urinate off the edge of the Grand Canyon. And oh, so sure enough, while we're out hiking, you know, we, <laughs> this, a, you know, a family passed us and they, you know, the teenager went off to the edge at one point to, to pee and I'm thinking is it my job to say no don't do that don't let your kid do that Um, so nothing bad happened but I look at my daughter they go okay we have to hike out of here I can't stand to look at that so no boy yeah yeah 
Well, thank you very much. Um, I oh, really appreciate okay, your... sure. My pleasure. All right, I'm going to hit the end recording button here. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.